Welcome to Dean's Council, a podcast aimed at supporting university leaders holding one of the more critical jobs on a university campus. Your panelists, Ken Kring, Jim Ellis, and Dave Eikenberry, engage in conversation with highly accomplished deans and other academic leaders regarding the ever-complex array of challenges that deans face in one of the loneliest and most unique jobs in the academy. Our guest today is John Quelch. In this episode, John shares with us numerous insights, which he has accumulated from his time leading three different business schools located across three different continents. After establishing himself as a distinguished professor in marketing, John became Dean of the London Business School in 1998, where he served for three years. During this time, he substantially increased the school's student body, its programs, and its revenues. Ten years later, John became Dean of the China Europe International Business School, where again he leveraged his keen perception of market opportunities to expand the faculty through revenue growth which in turn substantially increased the school's rankings. In 2017, John was named to his third deanship at the University of Miami. John held this role for five years, upon which he rejoined the faculty at Harvard Business School, where he has, over various stints, accumulated over 30 years of experience working with graduate students of all types. In short, John has a unique perspective of how business schools work within the broader context of the campus, and also how higher education more generally is trending. The unvarnished conversation and the advice we hear in this episode is filled with remarkable insight that any dean, new or old alike, will surely benefit from reflecting on. Well, John, thank you for joining us. We are joined by John Quelch, who has had one of the greatest careers in business education of all the people that I know about. And um, it's a privilege to have you join us and to talk a little bit about in the experiences you've had, there are so many deans listening to this that just will glean much of the information that you have to share. So Ken Kring and I will, will be asking the question. So let me start it off with the first one. You really are, as far as I know, only one in, in the academic world who's had the opportunity to be the dean on three continents, of three significant business schools on three continents. So you've seen international business education right there at the front lines more than anyone else has. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen and sort of what the changes are that are taking place in, in those different those different environments and, and you know how that reflects in today's world and sort of give us your thoughts as, as to international business education. Uh, thanks, Jim. So first of all, I think uh, I should just mention that I think there are two other people who have been deans of three business schools on three continents, but we might have a debate around the operational meaning of the word significant, quote unquote, in terms of the uh, the schools that they ran. So look, globalization has been a fantastic force for international business education. And what we find in many countries is that a flip side of it that's a little bit negative is that the best and brightest coming out of one country want to go and study their master's degree in another country. Uh, so I remember as early as uh, 
25 years ago when I was dean of London Business School, a challenge there was uh, how to be able to find enough good British students to stock the MBA program with enough talent so that uh, people coming from all over the world to London did not uh, find themselves in study groups with uh, no British student. So that that's kind of a, a slightly unusual uh, thought, but it, it is an operationally important negative for business schools in the context of internationalization, particularly those operating in smaller country environments. In the United States, of course, it's a different uh, kettle of fish and that problem is not really evident. I think um, a second factor related to globalization that's been an area where business schools have actually made a very good contribution is in uh, diversity. And it's really very much the case that uh, the arguments in favor of diversity in terms of greater creativity coming out of teams with uh, multicultural characteristics, a lot of that research has been conducted by organization behavior folks and applied psychology folks in business schools and that has, I think, enabled business schools to perhaps take a stronger stand than one would have expected in favor of diversity in the student population. And I think that that will continue despite the ruling that we had from the uh, Supreme Court yesterday, because we know that the arguments are evidence-based around the higher performance that one can extract from diverse and multicultural teams. So let me just stop there yeah, for a moment John, and certainly uh, let you ask another question or reflect on those of points. Globalization also, partially, I imagine, you know, through COVID. But interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, what we're seeing as some of the repatriation of knowledge. For instance, China, you know, they formerly sent and educated students in the U.S. are now increasingly returning to China. To build universities and sort of where do you think the extent to which that's a trend where do you think that's going so japan did that uh 30 years ago korea did it 20 years ago and uh, it's only natural that uh, china should want to build up its own universities to higher quality global standards and that therefore a higher proportion of chinese students would then uh, continue to do their graduate studies in in china but you know, I don't. I don't think that uh, we're going to uh, lose traction with China anytime soon in terms of graduate student enrollments, in particular, because many Chinese with wealth want to get at least one of their children outside of China, get them established in uh, Australia or Canada or the UK or the US, and potentially owning property there, move some of their wealth out of China. Uh, so that's one continuing motivation. And the other motivation is that there's no doubt that if you want to learn business, the United States is still the single best place in the world to learn business. And so a lot of Chinese families uh, will want to send their children to get the best possible business education and also the network of contacts that potentially can emanate from uh, being in the classroom with a um, group of uh, students from all over the world, but especially from the U.S. So, you know, the United States has really nothing to uh, 
toot its horn about in this regard because there are literally 750 Chinese students in the United States for every one American that there is in China. And, you know, the imbalance is just uh, so enormous. It's uh, 300,000 to roughly 4,000. And as a result of that, the Chinese, of course, know America much better than Americans know the Chinese. And there are not many initiatives currently in place from our side that really speak to the importance of mutual understanding and collaboration in this regard. So I would uh, mention only NYU's uh, Shanghai campus, Duke University's Kunshan campus, and notably, I think, the visionary and exceptional Schwartzman College at Tsinghua University where I think 40 or 45% of the students are business students in that program. So China will still be a strong source of uh, students for the United States and for Australia, the UK and Canada going forward. So go to your experience that you had at Miami. Is there anything along those same lines coming out of South America and Central America for students wanting to matriculate to United States MBA programs, like has happened in both Europe and China? The principal problem is the uh, dollar strength vis-a-vis Latin American currencies. It's extremely expensive, relatively speaking, for students from Brazil or Argentina to come to the U.S. for university education. And accordingly, it's typically only a very uh, elite group of households that can access that uh, opportunity. I don't think there's any shortage of demand, especially for a U.S. postgraduate degree. So I think what we've seen in Miami is that the possibilities of bringing undergraduates from Latin America to the U.S., except for a very small number of families, you know, that that is not something that we typically see happening. And even in Miami, where you would expect the Hispanic penetration of the undergraduate population to be strong, the vast majority of those Hispanics in the undergraduate business school are, of course, native to the United States. They are not immigrants from Latin America. Uh, when it comes to graduate degrees, though, there is, uh, as I said, a lot more interest out of Latin America in securing a U.S. degree on top of their native undergraduate qualification. And there, as I've said, the resistance is really on the price point uh, more than anything else. We have been able to organize some articulation agreements uh, with some business schools in Latin America, whereby undergraduates um, of caliber can gain credit into our master's programs. And therefore, since we are charging tuition on a per credit basis, it renders the pricing slightly more attractive than it would otherwise be. But generally speaking, I would say that University of Miami is not nearly as successful in penetrating Latin America uh, as you would hope and expect it to be. The one standout, I think, in this area in the U.S. is really Babson College, which 
over a 40-year period has done an excellent job of cultivating its reputation for entrepreneurship in Latin America, and they do uh, secure a significant number of undergraduates who uh, are from prominent families who who do undergraduate business degrees at Babson. John, one of the uh, amazing markers of your career is that you have increased enrollment and revenues at virtually every place you've been. Now, certainly with maturing MBA and, and some master's markets, you know, what advice or what insights do you have around sort of where are there opportunities sort of beyond the zero-sum game for enrollment increases? Being a marketing person, I'm really a growth-oriented person. I don't like being in situations where there isn't upside uh, growth potential. And what 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 I've done, Ken, as you know, is I, I've never accepted a dean's role in any city that did not have significant tailwinds behind it. So I, I, I hesitate to say this, but I, I would not be well suited to be the dean of an institution in a relatively rural environment. I operate only in big global cities with great global brand names in their own right, places that are destinations where students from around the world wish to or are likely to wish to come and then package a uh, positioning and value proposition that takes advantage of those tailwinds. So even even in Miami, for example, um, I think being alert to uh, the demographics of the era, I, I saw the opportunities in Miami coming back in 2016 before they became fashionable. Now everybody is moving to uh, Miami, but seven years ago, that was not so obvious a thing to do. So I think, you know, my advice to people who want to be deans is to actually be quite careful in terms of the, um, the the location that you choose not 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 the school but the location where the school is located that that I think can play a very important role in terms of whether or not you're able to grow That's a great point looking at Europe for just a minute one of the concerns I always had when I sat in the dean's job relative to potential issues that could crop up in the MBA programs, you know, we're all married to the two-year MBA program. In Europe, there are a number of one-year MBA programs, and actually it's probably the only place in the world that's got the one-year program. There may be a couple of others. And I always worried that if, if one of our top five business schools were to adopt a one-year MBA program, it would cause a domino effect with everybody else, which could cause all kinds of problems. Yet it never happened. It seems like it just stayed Europe-centric, and um, they still have those one-year MBA programs over there. What, what do you see in that regard? It's a pretty interesting concept. So I, I got into uh, a little bit of trouble 25 years ago in London, where uh, London Business School had the traditional two-year MBA program. And of course, our principal face-off competitor was INSEAD with uh, the one-year program. And every journalist who interviewed me asked me about it, and I became so exasperated one day that I said, you know what, a one-year MBA program is what you offer when you don't have enough decent faculty to offer a two-year program. 
and that that was published in the Financial Times and uh, um, sent me back uh, a little while with the then Dean of uh, INSEAD uh, in terms of our, our, our collaborative relationship. Um, but th there is a sense in which um, INSEAD, because it's uh, very experience heavy with respect to pre-experience requirements and IMD even more so, those schools can offer a one-year program and so forth. Of course, the problem is that uh, the student really has to know that they want to go to McKinsey or Goldman Sachs within one week of starting the program because the recruiting starts so early that there isn't really a chance in these programs for someone to reinvent themselves and rediscover or discover for the first time subject areas which uh, are different from those they've been focused on previously in their work environments. So I think for transitioning and transformational purposes, the two-year MBA still retains a lot of appeal. And of course, many recruiters uh, value the fact that they can use the summer in between first and second year as a test run for uh, trying out those who they think might fit with their long-term uh, recruiting initiatives. Yeah. By the way, there are some schools... There are some schools, Jim, who have switched from a two-year to a one-year program in North America in an effort to deal with the uh, fall-off in, in enrollment. And in none of those cases that I'm aware of has the performance or the ranking improved. That's I, I, I thought there were a couple that had tried that, and that's interesting to hear you say that. So thanks. John, another perspective that you bring that is uh, unique is just uh, insights around faculty in different parts of the world. And you've had the opportunity to build faculty in three different continents. Do you have any insights around trends? I mean, there's a lot of talk around interdisciplinarity, you know, sort of are there, are there challenges or differences from continent to continent for us to know about? Uh, I don't think that um, there are significant differences in the following sense. Number one, as you know, Ken, I'm a marketing faculty member by background, but no business school can be a great business school without a great finance department. And that usually means a great finance, a great accounting, and to the extent that economics is involved in the business school, a very strong economics group. Those three, from a political point of view, those three departments usually travel together in unison. It's very important if you're a dean to have those departments on your side and to invest in the further development of scholarship and teaching excellence in those departments. I'm not saying that the others are not important, but, you know, fundamental to what most people can't get online and need to go to school to get is training in finance and higher level accounting and in uh, economics. So that's that's the same whether or not you're in China, in London, or in uh, Miami. The second truism is that there, are, in my experience, there are only three things that motivate uh, faculty. You know, one is money, the second is power, and the third is recognition and respect. 
And what you have to do wherever you are in whatever leadership role you're in is figure out what turns each person on and figure out from that how to motivate them. And that's the same again, whatever environment you're in, you're going to have a mix of people, you know, for it just to give you a little bit more color on it. Some faculty members are very, very money oriented and, you know, measure their worth in an institution according to the amount of money they're paid. And, you know, that that often goes along with being in the finance faculty, for example. A second group of faculty are all about recognition and the respect that goes with, for example, becoming a chaired professor. I know many finance faculty who couldn't care less if they're a chaired professor as long as they're earning more than anybody else. But there are organization behavior faculty who aren't interested so much in the money. But, you know, if they've done a fantastic scholarship job over two decades, they, they want to be recognized. And um, uh, obviously, that's uh, fortunately for many deans, that's cheaper than uh, uh, compensating the, uh, the finance faculty. And then there's a, a small minority of faculty uh, and it is a minority. It's it's usually only, um, you know, 5% of faculty who are, who are really turned on by power. And, you know, they, they, they're not necessarily the greatest scholars. They're not necessarily interested in uh, pulling in the most amount of money. But, you know, they want to be the influencers, the, the uh, kingmakers, the power brokers behind the scenes in the institution. And so you you find these people in every culture. It's pretty much the same mix wherever you are. And therefore, I would say there are truisms that uh, cross the cultural boundaries. And th those are the things you need to focus on, not worry about the obvious intercultural differences, which require, you know, appropriate recognition of, you know, national holidays and different customs and so forth from one country to another. How do you address the big concern, the big question that keeps coming up, and it seems to have come up more recently relative to the value of higher education in general? And obviously the tuition, the rising tuition costs Universities are not particularly good at cutting off dead wood, but rather letting it sit there and cost them money. And they just keep increasing tuition and increasing tuition. And at some point in time, we think there's a ceiling and yet we haven't hit it yet. But how do you look at the value of higher education um, relative to the way people are thinking today and some of these concerns that people are expressing? So I think, I think Jim, uh, higher education is one of the most inefficient in industries, certainly in the United States, maybe not so much in uh, the rest of the world. But in the United States, the inefficiency is propped up by the generosity of alumni who don't demand sufficient for the investment that they make in the universities that they went to. If you took away tomorrow, all of the alumni funding that goes into higher education each year in the United States, which would then put it on more of a level playing field with uh, the UK or Australia or Canada, where that level of philanthropy does not exist, 
the U.S. Uh, university would collapse under the weight of its own inefficiency. I'll give you another uh, illustration. In 1978, I took a master's degree from Harvard University. The tuition for that degree was $4,000. If that $4,000 was inflation adjusted today, it would be $23,000. The cost of that degree today is $60,000. List price. That tells you a lot about what you need to know about why the complaints regarding higher education's inefficiency are so legitimate. And, you know, if, if the public uh, really understood how few classes most business school professors teach at the top institutions for salaries that most people in the country would consider magnificent, they would be appalled at how little work quote unquote, these university professors have to do for the compensation that they receive. And, you know, by the way, on, on university campuses, as you know, business schools have a reputation which is not a, a particularly positive reputation. I mean, of course, if they are making money and can cross-subsidize the music school or the divinity school, that's great. But the reason why business schools don't have a re good reputation is because professors at business schools get paid a lot of money and they don't have to chase any grants to get it. If you're a professor at an engineering school or in a science department, you have to chase grant money in order to cover your salary. And business school professors don't. Actually, law school professors don't either, for the most part. So... This is, you know, a not unreasonable source of, um, um, I won't say it's resentment, but, you know, or jealousy, but a source of concern to folks on the university campus. And it's one reason why business schools uh, do run into difficulties in terms of, if you like, internal reputation on campus. So what, what to do about it? I mean, I'm a, I myself am a very frugal person when it comes to managing budgets. And I think, you know, perhaps one reason why I've been reasonably successful is because uh, at the institutions I've gone to, I bring a, a level of frugality and financial stewardship that coming from Harvard with unlimited resources might seem slightly odd, but nevertheless, that's who I am. And um, for example, at the University of Miami, we we were operating the business school with approximately, to give you one metric, $1 million of revenue per staff member. Not per, I'm talking about per non-academic staff member. So, you know, I would challenge anyone to look at their business school and tell me that, you know, they are anywhere close to $1 million of revenue per FTE, non-academic staff. Now, actually, that was too high. It really should have been seven fifty or 800000 but due to COVID, we were forced to uh, lay off uh, and furlough a certain number of people. So um, the revenues kept growing and the uh, the staff um, numbers were restricted. So the 
the KPI, that particular KPI grew to uh, be a million dollars. Should have been about 750 or 800. But my point is, most business school deans and most advisory boards of business schools, uh, they don't look at these kind of KPIs on a regular basis. They're looking at uh, rankings and maybe starting salaries of students, which are, of course, very important outcome measures. But um, you can't you can't have any credibility on a university campus as a business school if you're not seen to be a model of efficiency and good operation. I mean, that's what the president of a university expects by way of example from the business school and the money that comes from the business school in terms of excess, as I said, is needed in some respects to cross-subsidize other institutions that can't be as well run. John, in a similar vein, you know, most deans tell us that not only are they asked to subsidize and share, but also there are other aspects of being in a university that uh, require increasing interaction sort of across a university. Do you have sort of tricks of the trade or tips to folks who may have sort of those increased requirements or requests? So when I was a young professor at Harvard Business School, this issue came up quite frequently because the president of Harvard University uh, was in charge of a set of schools where every ship ran on its own bottom. In other words, every school was supposed to wash its face and uh, cross-subsidization was not really in fashion. And whenever the issue of taxing the business school came up, John MacArthur, who was the dean for 15 years at uh, Harvard Business School, a great guy, what he would do would be he'd go to a couple of our wealthy alumni and say to them, look, you know, the president is giving me a hard time. They need a chair at the Divinity School. You know, you're a Christian. You know, would you mind coughing up three million so, you know, I can get you to give a chair to the Divinity School? And if I get a couple of those, then, you know, the president will be off my back for the at least the next year. In other words, what, what we're saying here is that, you know, the, the business school needs to find ways to help solve the problems of other deans without having the provost get into a mode of raising taxation on the business school in order to do so. It's, it's much better if these kind of... Uh, Relationships and cross-subsidizations can be forestalled by being handled in a, in a kind of personal, informal manner with one-on-one -on -one assistance and support and uh, help being provided rather than the business school being standoffish and fighting a rearguard action and then being uh, taxed to the hilt because they weren't collaborative enough. So I, I've always made a lot of time for other deans, for helping other deans, for, as we did in Miami, joint executive education with the education school. We developed a joint PhD program with the nursing school. We uh, provided additional course support and management for the music school because the dean there was very keen that all of his music graduates know something about business so they wouldn't be fleeced by uh, agents once they went out and started their career as performers. There are any number of things that you can do as dean of a business school to help your other deans. And if you do that, 
then the mood won't be there. The negative mood won't be there that will result in you being taxed. I think that is really great advice. I tried really hard in my role to work very closely with deans of all the other schools, and it really did work. We, we always sort of felt we were the hub and the spokes for the other schools. We wanted to participate in some form of academic experience with every single one of those schools, and we almost got there. But you're, you're, I think it's great advice, great advice for, uh, for deans. Before we run out of time, I, I've got to ask you a question about pedagogy, because you have always been a major proponent of the Socratic method and the case study. I grew up with it in my two years that I spent on the Charles River and, and really believe in it myself. Tell me what you think about the, the, the future of the case method and, and how it should be positioned and how you would position it when you were in a place like Miami that really most of the faculty didn't understand it. They, they, to them, it's something that's a little scary. This is the way I look at it. And I'm really interested in your thoughts on that. Uh, so we have this term, the flipped classroom, yep. which has become fashionable in the last five or five or six years. The case study method invented 100 years ago was the flipped classroom from the day it was invented. And so it, it always amuses me that people feel like they've discovered this uh, wonderful new approach that kind of takes the sage on the stage, off the stage, and replaces it with simulations or interactive, experiential learning, case study method, whatever it may be, because from a Harvard perspective, that's been a truism for 100 years. I think... In terms of institutions where the, the case study method is not that well ingrained in the culture, I, I think it's very dangerous for someone who is, uh, like myself, a big proponent of it to come in and be preaching that gospel. It's really up to individual faculty to discover the relative merits. I mean, in my experience, the faculty that, that I've seen who are using the case study method as the core pedagogy in their curricula typically are performing extremely well in terms of uh, student ratings and the level of interaction is very much appreciated by the students. I mean, I, I don't think that I've actually ever taught an MBA class that involved only a lecture. And, you know, my definition of a good class has always been the, the class is best when the faculty member eats up the least amount of time that the, the students are delivering 90, 95% of the total content of the class. And in today's era, I think this is even more important than ever. Uh, one, one thing I might just add, because someone asked me the other day about chat gbt and uh what what did i think of that with respect to the the case method and i said well in all of the in all of the classes i've taught i've always allocated 50 percent of the grade to classroom participation and if you want to circumvent chat gbt i would suggest you do the same Pres prescribe case studies for your classes. Of course, the uh, the student might go online and find uh, some quasi-answer to the case study. But if you're assigning 50% of the grade to class participation, someone who
who's found a chat GBT answer, but doesn't really understand it and is going to try and play that in class, they're going to be unmasked pretty quickly unless they're very, very adroit. So I think the case study method uh, still has tremendous legs. I I recently, Jim, uh, did something that no one I think has done before. I've had 39 research assistants in my career at Harvard Business School, and I invited them all to a reunion at Harvard last month. And believe it or not, 20 out of the 39 came. Great. And collectively, those individuals working with me developed case studies that have sold over 7 million copies. Wow. And to anyone who says you can't make an impact as an educator by being heavily invested in case writing and course development, and you should just focus on scholarship um, in arcane journals, you know, that's my answer. Well, I, I, I have to say, what a wonderful way to finish, because I could not agree with you more. Just to tell you, when I started teaching at USC 25 years ago, I initiated it at 50% class participation, because that's what I, that's how I was brought up. And uh, I was chastised significantly by the associate dean of the school who said it can't be higher than 10%. I said, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to leave it at 50%. If you want to fire me, fire me. But it's going to stay at 50% because that's the way I learn. That's the way I think I can teach. That's the way I think the students will learn. And quite honestly, the evaluations proved it. There's no question about that. So thank you for that validation of that. But more importantly, thank you for all of your insights today. This has just been absolutely phenomenal. And, and I, I can't tell you personally and professionally how much I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to, uh, to hear your thoughts. You've, just, you've been a dean of deans, and um, we truly, truly appreciate it. Thank you very much, Jim. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks, John. Really great to be with you. Thank you, Ken. Thanks again. So, Ken, that was a fascinating, fascinating talk with John Quelch. What, what were your takeaways from that? Well, I mean, my first takeaway is experience matters. Um, this is an individual who's had extraordinary experience across many uh, institutions and many markets who also integrates with a kind of intelligence and observation that, I mean, I thought it was a fascinating conversation. Uh, it could have gone on for another hour and any topic we touched, he had both experience and insight to talk about. How did you take it? You know, I couldn't agree more. I, I really wish in looking back at my own career that I had had the opportunity to hear that kind of wisdom in my first year of being a dean, because there were so many things that he reflected on that would have helped me in terms of the vision I put forth and sort of all kinds of things. I just, the, the experience that he brings to the fore, there's no question about that. Having seen from all, all angles, I mean, not only being a dean in China, being a dean in London, being a dean in Miami, the dean in Miami helped him with the thought process on understanding the, the Latin American student population. So I mean, there, there's a there's a worldly experience right there. It's great. He also 
I mean, it's a remarkable skill on his part is that he doesn't sugarcoat anything. So he'll he'll say that he'll he's able to say things in an unvarnished way that is both makes him understandable, but also uh, incisive. I mean, you know, his comment about the inefficiency in U.S. education system and why and how uh, education has become too expensive for the consumer was just you know, completely straightforward and unapologetic for, you know, bringing what it could be considered bad news to those of us who are involved in, you know, running universities. Yeah, I think is just the way he laid out how much it cost him to get his postgraduate degree and then what that would what that would cost today versus what it does cost today. Right then, I mean, that's just in black and white when it's 3X what it should be. And and then to say okay a million dollars per staff member well that's those are metrics that are really important for a dean to understand and um, would really help you in terms of just the way you look at your own school so I think that his just very wise in terms of his the way he looks at things and and very like you say cuts right to the chase quickly and I truly appreciated it most marketing guys don't cut to the chase and he does yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I loved his description of faculty motivation, yes. for instance, and being able to categorize in sort of different buckets, some interacting, but, you know, between money, power, and uh, recognition and respect, you know, there's some sort of incentive points that good leaders have to be able to understand and tap into. And, you know, it's interesting because we have had a number of deans on our podcast that have talked about when they became a, a dean, initially, they sat down with every single member of the faculty. We have talked about that. But here now is the framework under which you should be talking to them. What does motivate them? Yeah. Are they motivated by power, recognition, or money? Right. And if you can come away from that meeting with that individual, then you know very much where it's going to go. And that's really what John said. And a lot of deans had those meetings. And like some have said, they made sure they went to their office as opposed to have the meeting in the dean's office. But really with, with that thought in mind that I need to learn those exact aspects of that individual to figure out how to motivate them. So just very succinct in the way he threw things out. That's great. Well, thank you. That was good. Good. Good, good discussion. Yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dean's Council. This show is supported in part by Corn Ferry, leaders in executive search. Dean's Council was produced in Boulder, Colorado by Joel Davis of Analog Digital Arts. For a catalog of previous shows, please visit our website at deanscouncil.com. If you have any feedback for us, please let us know by sending an email to feedback at deanscouncil.com. And finally, please hit follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so that you can automatically receive our latest show.